Hey everybody, welcome to Latter-day Struggles. This is Valerie and I am happy to be here with you today. I am on my own and I wanted to visit with everyone today, really just let you into some of my own personal musings and some experiences that I've had lately that have to do with the topic of cynicism. Okay, so I'm going to give you a little bit of backstory as I sort of walk you through my own thoughts. My hope here is that I have some really good thoughts and they're even fairly well organized in my brain. Let's just see if it works out to where it becomes organized and it feels organized after I've actually tried to say these things. I'm sure many of us have had the same experience where we plan something and we have this idea of what we want to communicate. And at the end of the day, we walk away from something and go, oh, that didn't even go nearly as planned. So let's just see how I'm able to do today. I went on a little silent retreat that I gifted myself a few weeks ago, really as much as anything, because I wanted to spend a week in contemplation and really some solitude around this work that I'm doing. And I wanted to give myself large chunks of time to create content for my catalog for the online courses that I am trying to roll out here. Well, I've already started rolling them out. As many of you know, I have started the couple's guide to faith crisis and expansion. And I just finished the first course and dropped that. I go, I guess maybe a month ago. And I have several or have had several up my sleeve of content that I've wanted to create so that there's a whole catalog of courses for those who are unable or don't feel like group work is a fit. And I know that's not something that I can continue to grow and grow and grow because of my own limitations. And therefore, I also knew about myself that it's really hard for me to work in this way with in, in fits and starts. I really need lots of hours of silent contemplation. And I don't really, my life does not afford me with a lot of those hours. And so I got on an airplane and I actually uh, flew out to one of my favorite places. I love California. I was born and raised in Utah, but we spent a lot of my childhood traveling to California for family vacations. My husband's family has uh, roots in California. Nathan and I met and served our missions in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I just think it's a beautiful place. And therefore... I got on an airplane and I started my journey in at Lake Tahoe and I spent several days almost not talking. And I'm so I'm very much an introvert, which surprises a lot of people, but I enjoy deep conversations with one or few. I am never less comfortable in my entire life in mixing and mingling, going to conferences and small talk is uh, torture for me. And so to get on an airplane and to become quiet and have the opportunity to listen, to read, to contemplate, to work, to put my ideas together and to have large chunks of time to do that is just a dream for me. And so I did this and the way the week looked for me was several hours of work, putting co course content together and then every few hours just to break it up. But I know like neurologically, the brain can only handle so much of the same activity. And so I would go out on a walk for one to, I don't know, an hour to 90 minutes, maybe two hours. And I would just sort of walk leisurely, listen, think, and enjoy nature. And the, my choice of 
content for this particular part of my uh, life and my trip was I listened to a book by the name of, it's called Searching for Sunday. And it's by a woman whose name is Rachel Held Evans. And she may be familiar to some of you. She is someone who has run in the circles of a lot of the uh, reformers throughout Protestantism and evangelicalism and very, very well respected. And so I've heard of her name here and there and everywhere in my own readings. And this is actually my first exposure to her. And as I was listening to her, to this audiobook while I was walking along the shores of Lake Tahoe, I had a lot of opportunities to reflect on several things that I was listening and learning about. And I want to reflect on one, one big topic today. And then if I can corner Nathan, I'm going to have him come on and visit with me about a, another subject for the next episode. So this week is going to be focused a lot on the work of Rachel Held Evans and some of her legacy. And I say legacy because sadly her life was cut short as a very young woman. And my understanding, although I haven't done any you know deep research on her, my understanding is that she died rather abruptly and suddenly as a very young woman, she is just a little bit younger than me. She's just nearly 40 years old or was nearly 40 years old. And she passed away uh, just a couple of years ago. And so I was really, really struck by that. And that was actually something that was um, bringing up a lot of existential questions and thoughts in my mind as I was listening to her work. And it really, in some ways, made her her own experience uh, deeper and richer because it seemed as if in her short life, she, gosh, I'm getting a little emotional here. It seemed like she had some very important work to do in helping us understand the nature of growth in the context of faith. Something else that I really connected with in my contemplation as I was listening to her and as she was teaching me in these reflective moments that I was lucky enough to have a few weeks ago is I I was struck by the similarities of her journey with our journeys. She is an evangelical woman and she's from the South, the South part of the United States. So she she's different in her, her, the origins of her faith. And yet at the same time, I was profoundly struck by how similar her faith journey has been about being um, a young child, uh, deeply committed to her faith tradition and all of the things that she learned and the programming. And in some ways, some of the really great benefits and advantages and gifts that her tradition brought her growing older, becoming more mature, becoming a little bit more critically thinking and starting to question things, starting to challenge things, having pushback from her own community, feeling fear and trepidation and uh, insecurity, and then finding her voice. She started a blog that became very, very popular and well-known. And then of course, also there was a lot of critical response to her blog because she started having the courage to talk about the taboo topics in Christianity. And in her case, it was evangelical Christianity. But I, I really realized as I was listening that what she was going through is very similar with what we are going through and with I with what I am going through. Hopefully God will not take me early, <laughs> but it uh, there were a lot of parallels. And she really captured the attention, not only of people in her own evangelical circles, but in large in the larger movement of Christianity 
really pushing back against some of the, the harms that happen in orthodoxy of any flavor. And so I really found some sisterhood with her and some camaraderie. And it also gave me a little bit of, I guess you could say, I don't know. I, I felt comfort a little bit in that the struggles that we are having here, those of us who are in, in or around the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, these are not Mormon specific struggles. Of course, we definitely have our own idiosyncratic struggles that are unique to us. Absolutely. And also at the same time, there is quite a bit in the larger picture of our faith experience as we evolve and grow and wake up and feel the frustration and the betrayal and the disorientation and then struggle with relational issues around how do I navigate what's going on inside because the map no longer matches the terrain and how do I move forward? I mean, th these questions, what she described was so close to what we are going through that it really helped me recognize that this is a, a capital F faith question, not a Mormon faith question, and that we are on the right track as we are grappling with and confronting these questions with courage and with fear and trembling but that we're looking these things in the eye and that we are doing what we know how to do in terms of uh, confronting scary things in the face of opposition and sometimes in the face of uh, quite a bit of lack of validation from the, uh, the institutions and even some of the people that we love the most around us. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and quote to you. Actually, I'm not. We're going to be talking a lot about cynicism, but before... I lock in on the specific quote that Rachel shared in this book that I'm really going to be focusing on. I want to sort of set the stage because she talked a lot about the why we become cynical, why this almost feels like a mandatory part of our faith development journey. <clears throat> and I was really wanting to talk about this a week or so ago. And to be quite honest, I was thinking about it. I'd read through the quote. I was pondering and something had come up in my interactions in my life. And I couldn't produce this podcast because quite frankly, I was feeling fairly cynical myself. I was just having that experience of like, what is the actual point? <laughs> I'm wasting my time. This is a lost cause. And who knows how long I'll be able to stay this course. And, you know, I think we're all entitled to feeling that way in our own, you know, in our own lives and our own experiences. And so I put, I put it on hold and worked on other things, although the, the essence of the truth of what she was saying remained with me. And I kind of thought to myself, okay, I know the mind uh, is, you know, everything is fluid and life is organic and things change. And even the way I see the world changes as my life and my experience and my my abilities to see things differently evolves from day to day and sometimes even from hour to hour. And so sure enough, as the days passed by, I uh, was able to and currently am feeling to talk about this from a very, very different paradigm. I was inspired by and enlightened by the, well, I guess a few things. I'm consistently inspired by and enlightened by those of you who are in my many, I'm, I run these several, these several small groups almost every day of the week, I get to have interactions with individuals who are on this journey 
with each other and with me. And it's so beautiful to sort of see the ebbs and flows of hope and cynicism and grief and resurrection. And I guess I say resurrection because one of the big themes that we talk about in our small groups, and I hope that you hear here on the podcast, is that everything is cyclical and that we're always experiencing some variation of life or birth, I should say, birth and death and rebirth over and over and over again. And so if, so if I can zoom out and recognize that even though I definitely experience moments of cynicism and frustration, but I also recognize that these are frequently followed by a different perspective and a different paradigm, and that this isn't just me that's experiencing these, that the people around me are also doing so. And as we grow, we start recognizing that maybe this isn't um, a huge disaster, but maybe we are actually on track. And that life itself in the life of a disciple is the, the wrestle is part of it. It's not a mistake. It's not that something has gone grossly wrong, but that we are in fact on this journey that is progressing our growth. And that if I can start recognizing that what we're experiencing in faith expansion was evoked by experiences that happened at church, but perhaps this is as good a place as ever to grow and to evolve and to recognize that we are here on a journey to learn something profoundly important about the worth of the soul, to learn about how to love, to learn about how to see and experience life as a journey and a challenging one at that, that that is in fact what we're doing here. And that it's not as much about, well, it begins, I should say, as the hope for an institution or a person to give us all the answers. And then later on, as we grow and as we grieve and we recognize that never could be and never will be. And then we recognize that we are absolutely on track by being able to, to see this life and this journey and even the fragmentation of our faith as part of the process, which is growing our souls. And yet at the same time, I think we very frequently do not have the eyes to see that we are small players in a large drama that is not only our lives, but our individual lives, but that we are tiny participants in a human experience of making meaning and that our religious experience is just part of the drama that is intended to help us become meaning-making uh, creatures. But we don't necessarily always see that. What we see is uh, we are given the script or we have received beliefs about what the institution, especially what churches and what our church is supposed to have given to us and what it's supposed to be giving us. And when it stops giving that to us, or we recognize uh, it, it never was, it was, it never did or never did a good job, or it's hurt us. We want to throw the whole thing away and we become very, very disoriented and with good reason. They sell us a product or a service that is supposed to deliver some kind of anxiety management, some certainty, some peace, some joy, some happiness, an outcome in terms of our marriage, our relationships, uh, and our eternal life. And they just can't sell that product or that service. It doesn't go so well. And we get frustrated, angry, and upset. Of course we do. But it's because the paradigm is completely wrong and they don't know that. And so as we come to know that, we have to come to an awakening experience and recognize, oh my goodness, they sold a product or a service that they thought worked. 
they may even believe it works. I have come to believe or come to realize because once again, the map and the terrain have ceased to match up. I've come to realize that these things do not work as promised. And then we have a choice to make. And usually this is a long, slow process, meaning that it doesn't happen overnight. And we are going to inevitably sink into any combination of despair, betrayal, frustration, grief, and yes, cynicism. Okay, so I'm going to be touching on a couple of those other topics here in a few minutes as we unpack cynicism, but I really want to spend a few minutes talking about this concept of cynicism, because I dare say, if you're listening to this podcast, you are no stranger to moments and maybe even long stretches of cynicism. And of course you are. And of course I am. Of course we are. It's an inevitability when our entire worldview and our frame has been rocked to its core and we have to pick up the pieces and figure out something else. Okay. So this is what Rachel says about cynicism. And once again, I want to validate that it's a very, very legitimate feeling for us to have. And I really, really love how she clearly has experienced a lot of this in her own life. And if you read her work, you'll see that she is no stranger to cynicism. And yet also, uh, this really touched me because it uh, helps me recognize uh, the importance of honoring cynicism as a place to pause, but it's not a great place to live forever. She says this, cynicism is a powerful anesthetic we use to numb ourselves to pain but which also by its nature numbs us to truth and joy. Grief is healthy. Even anger can be healthy, but numbing ourselves with cynicism in an effort to not feel those things is not healthy. When I write off all evangelicals as hateful and ignorant, I am numbing myself with cynicism. When I jeer at their foibles, I am numbing myself with cynicism. When I roll my eyes and fold my arms and say, well, I know God can't be present over there. I am numbing myself with cynicism and I am missing out. I am missing out on a God who surprises us by showing up where we don't think God belongs. I am missing out on a God whose grace I need just as desperately, just as innately as the lady who dropped her child's sponsorship in a protest against gay marriage. Cynicism may help us create simpler storylines with good guys and bad guys but it does not make us any better at telling the truth, which is at that, but it does not make us any better at telling the truth, which is that most of us are a frightening mix of good and evil sinner and saint. Okay. I'm going to close the quote now. I loved that because it really helps us recognize that sometimes cynicism uh, like, as I said, is a necessary part of the process of grief and growth, that also it is a numbing agent and it prevents us from actually seeing things as they really are. And I want to just spend a few minutes, if I may, talking a little bit about why, let's go ahead and break down why is cynicism such a temptation and why do we feel, why do so many of us oftentimes land in cynicism and struggle in staying there, or we struggle because we can't seem to get out of it. We can't feel anything but cynicism. Okay. I'm going to start with, these are just some ideas I had. I'm sure this is not a, an exhaustive list and you may have other ideas that you would add to this, which is great. Okay. One of the reasons why I think we struggle with cynicism 
is because I believe it protects us from grief. And many of us, I, I can only speak for some of you know the many hours of conversations I've had with a cross section of you who listen to this podcast, who come into my small groups as we process the grief and some of the trauma that we have gone through as we're going through faith crisis and expansion, but there is a lot of grief. And I noticed that for many people, there is a, there's a, it's directly proportionate. There's in other words, how do I say this to the extent that we bought in and were very devout, very believing and sort of really, really had these strong testimonies of the restoration of the gospel. It's that cross-section of human beings that feels the most grief and feels the most betrayal and feels the most disoriented. And of course it does, doesn't they? That makes perfect sense to me because th those of us who were in that camp, I included, I was one of those, uh, I, I had it all figured out. Um, something was handed to me that had all the answers, made all the sense in the world, and it relieved me from the need to manage a lot of anxiety in life that others without all of the answers were having to manage. And so in some ways it was, um, it was something that I, 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 I was grateful for at the time because it prevented me from complexity. And so when we receive this, we take it in and we, you know, swallow it whole. It's that much more disorienting when we come to recognize that it is not as we thought it was. Those people who are on another paradigm or another perspective, which is I, I do also work with a, a handful of people. I would say this is a, a lesser number of people, but I, I, <laughs> I maintain that I'm very jealous of them. A lot of people, well, not a lot, there's, but there's several who were sort of raised skeptics or they were lucky enough to be raised in other traditions or other cultures or in, um, in homes with uh, like a by faith home. And so they had other perspectives that prevented them from swallowing our faith tradition whole, which, which actually gifted them with some uh, extra layers of critical awareness. And they were able and have been able, although they feel pain, and they feel grief. It's it's in some ways they've been insulated from the depth of the grief because they've had a bigger worldview. And so those of us who have been the most devout and the most orthodox uh, feel so much grief and so much pain and so much disorientation that we are, there's a temptation to throw the whole thing out and become very, very cynical. It's all bad. It's all wrong. Everything's a lie. We kind of move into almost like a black and white paradigm, which is very similar to the black and white paradigm that we used to have only on the other side of the question. And so that's a big reason I think why we feel cynical is because there's just so much grief. Grief is painful. Grief is a soft emotion. Uh, anger or cynicism is more of a hard emotion. It's a defensive emotion. It's a protective. I talk a lot in my groups about these self-states. Um, we have the wounded self-state or a wounded child self-state. That's very vulnerable. And then we uh, move into, when we have this wounded self-state, oftentimes we move into uh, a different self-state, which is a protector. Uh, it's angry. It's aggressive. And uh, we come by these protective self-states, honestly, and they are here to keep us safe, of course. And cynicism is one of those protectors. If I don't have to if I can just be angry and cynical and throw the whole thing out, then I don't have to confront the, the extreme grief that I feel that my entire identity, my worldview, the constellation of how I saw myself in context to all of my relationships is 
gone or at least uh, diminished greatly and I have to reconstruct something differently. That is really grief inducing. And so sometimes cynicism is the way we uh, bypass the struggle and pain of the growth that comes from reconstructing something and actually looking at the grief. Um, I also think that we feel uh, to the extent that we bought in or we were you know, that devout or that orthodox, that true believing, <laughs> you can choose your way of languaging that, we are equally disoriented to the extent that we felt oriented beforehand. And so cynicism, once again, is a byproduct of the, the depths and breadths of our disorientation. Back to this idea that everything is cyclical and that in every realm of our lives, whether it be in relationship uh, with other humans, with the church, with our professional lives, even as our bodies grow and age, we are always somewhere in a cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. And I think it's so important, at least it has been for me, it's been so helpful for me to recognize when I'm feeling grief or when I'm feeling really painful feelings to, to sort of orient myself around where am I in that cycle? And as I was thinking about uh, Rachel's quote and kind of going deeper myself into this concept of cynicism, it occurred to me that I could really situate cynicism inside of that cycle and recognize that to experience and feel cynicism is, is really, it's where we are struggling with death. We're struggling with the death of a paradigm. We're struggling with the death of maybe our testimonies, as the church likes to call it. Not with our belief in God and not with our belief in um, growth and transformation. That there's, there's no death going on there. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say it's actually we're experiencing massive amounts of rebirth in the experiences that we are going through in faith deconstruction and expansion. But also the cynicism is active death. It is where we are feeling just so out of sorts because something has died. And perhaps in some cases when we're feeling the most cynical, we don't have the eyes to see, at least in that moment, what the rebirth is going to be, what it looks like, what it feels like. We don't know that thing that is just before us. Richard Rohr often talks about this idea of us being in a liminal space, which is we just left something and we have not entered into something else. And so it's sort of that dark, scary, insecure place that is very disorienting and it feels like a death, but we haven't yet experienced the rebirth yet. It's terrifying, which is why we need community. That's why we need each other. I think that's why these groups that I am lucky enough to be a part of bond so rapidly and quickly with each other for the most part, because they're in this darkness, this middle space where they haven't quite found their footing. And then the beautiful thing is as they find their footing, they recognize that they're finding community as the rebirthing process takes place. And then it becomes really, really beautiful. But the cynicism part, I believe, is the part where we are wrestling in very real ways with death. And yet we haven't really entered into birth yet. And I think that's why cynicism is, once again, as Carolyn Pearson would say, it's a gas station. She actually doesn't say it about cynicism, but I think it's fair. She talks about anger being a great gas station, but not a great home. That something drives us forward. And yet there are certain experiences that have to be felt for us to be healed from them. But they're not necessarily good for the soul to live there forever. 
it's rec- it's good to recognize what the ad- what what's adaptive about our experiences and our emotions. We don't want to pass by them. We don't want to bypass them and yet recognize what is the adaptive value of this experience? Why am I feeling it? And to recognize that grief is real, we need to recognize what we lost, what we left behind, all of the feelings that come with that experience and recognize that it is in the service of moving forward into something that eventually will become a very evidently to us a rebirth process. And so that's, I think, why uh, cynicism is, that's what Rachel's, I think, talking about, which is when we live in cynicism forever, in some ways it's forestalling the rebirth process. But I think sometimes we need a map. We need somebody to help us recognize, okay, you're feeling this way, which makes sense. And also let's talk about how and why you got there and how we can move forward beyond it, not sort of pressure ourselves forward before we're ready, but recognize that everything is a process. Everything is an unfolding and, and a regrouping so that we can move on to the next thing. Okay. So in the spirit of my thinking about all of these ways of thinking about cynicism and why we feel that way and how to actually plug these ideas into the church and our own deconstruction process. I mean, I think we get cynical. Let me just go ahead and be specific here as far as grief itself. What are the reasons why we uniquely here in our tradition struggle with cynicism and why some of us may actually get stuck? Um, I think we there are some specific ideas that I think are, are uniquely, uh, that make us vulnerable to some cynicism is that I think, and this maybe just might be my own confessional time, which I'm happy to do. I'm happy to talk to you for just a second about why I think the death of certain ideas uh, stings and it makes it challenging and it makes us, it makes us feel, you know, the betrayal and the sadness and the disorientation and the hurt and the anger. And we, it's, it's the death of these ideas before we have to recognize different ways of looking at this and reposition the church which I'm going, I'm going to do here in a minute, but let's just talk for a second about the death of the ideas. Okay. Just some ideas. These are kind of like, <laughs> these are reasons why we feel cynical. Uh, we have to overcome constructs. Like we are the only true church. Uh, we have to overcome constructs. This is once again, this is where we feel the grief and the death because our identities are crafted around these very ideas. When they go away, it is by definition going to require a great deal of grieving and reconstructing, which brings up a lot of frustration and cynicism. Okay. So I started with true church. The next one is covenant path. We are once again, uh, it seems like it's uh, picking up steam. We talk all of the time about being on the covenant path. Uh, we are really committed to right belief. We believe that, or we've been told the received ideas by at least those in my generation is we are the chosen and we are the best. And we have something to give everybody else in the world. So once again, very disorienting. In some ways, it's very liberating. It's enlightening. I think it's both, right? I think first we have to recognize that we have to let go of all of those identities that were in some ways a way for us to fit in and make sense of the world around us. If we could be special, if we could be chosen, if we could be the ones that were bringing the world truth, in some ways, it does create in us an identity where we know who we are and why we fit. Now, of course, as we grow out of that, we recognize that there are all sorts of problems with that way of seeing the world and ourselves. 
which we must address and also acknowledge at the same time that for at least a period of time, it served in the development of some kind of an identity for a period of time. But once again, the disorientation comes up and then we have to actually make meaning of and manage the reorientation process. Okay, so we uh, chosen generation. Let me just go back to my list here. Uh, a, a, a fixation with uh, converting other people, with helping other people. Also, I think we feel cynical because there is a lot of formalized rhetoric about what it means to grow in our spirituality. Uh, those of us who are in faith expansion, uh, we're not understood, of course. We're, we're in the world of faith development, we are further on. And so by default, of course, people in a different phase that is an earlier phase of faith development cannot understand where we, where we are. Just as much as people that are further on the spectrum than we are, we cannot understand where they are because we have not been there yet. We can only see through the paradigm of our own unfolding experiences. And so we know because we've oftentimes been where they are in that earlier stage of faith, we know what they're feeling about us. We know what they're saying about us. We know how they're experiencing us. And so it becomes very easy to get frustrated and feel cynical that we are profoundly misunderstood especially in the face of our own insecurities. Because in this liminal space, many of us ourselves feel very insecure. We actually have a little inner orthodox person that wonders from day to day if we in fact are all of the things that they fear that we are. If we're falling away, if we're losing our salvation, if we're ruining our children, if we're ruining our uh, relationship with God, we feel those things ourselves. And so of course, to project those feelings onto others, because that may be some of our experience. Of course, it's disorienting and it may bring up the the desire to just throw the whole thing out to get very, in fact, cynical. Okay. So as we sort of talk about all of these reasons why it makes sense to feel cynical, let's just spend a minute talking about how, well, I guess I can just share with you how I have uh, gone through the process. And of course it's ongoing. Uh, it's an ongoing process of reorienting myself so that I can make meaning of, give myself a lot of grace about my cynicism, but also my personal experience of better understanding the nature of growth so that I don't force myself out of cynicism, but so that something naturally happens within me to help me move beyond cynicism as a natural outcome of my own process and experience. And so in, in, in my explaining that, I want to talk to you a little bit about a conversation that I had with a woman. I'm really lucky that I, I just feel like the work that I do, I could not have imagined how, how lucky I am to be in connection with so many fine, earnest, beautiful human beings through this podcast and through the interactions I have with people in the groups that I run. And so one of the conversations I had with a woman in one of my groups, she shared something that really actually gave me the ability to put my thoughts together so that I could give this podcast episode to you all. I was in that space of reading uh, the, the quote on cynicism and feeling too cynical to talk about it in any way that was helpful. <laughs> And then we had this conversation and she said, I've, she said, I've, I'm a woman who has a lot of uh, dreams and she has had 
oh gosh, I don't remember exactly how she shared it, but something to the extent of she has had a lot of experiences where people who have passed on have visited her in her, in her dreams. And I'm probably misrepresenting that. So I hope she forgives me that I'm going to do my best here to represent what her, the essence of her, her experience was. And she was a little insecure in sharing that because she's like, I know that sounds kind of weird. And anyways, I don't find that weird at all, (laughs) probably because I'm someone who has had some similar experiences of that nature. And I certainly believe in, uh, in the eternal nature of the soul. Not only before we, you know, I believe that the soul uh, pre-exists, you know, our life and it, it goes on and on and whatnot. And so she said that someone had just recently passed away in her life and she was visited by this individual and she said she asked him a question and she says, what, what's going on? She's in, she's in, you know, a faith expansion group and going through her own process and what, whatever. And she said, is there, what's going on with the church? Like with this church? And my sense is she, I think I know she, I think she knows because I know her well enough to know her beautiful journey and what she's coming to learn. And in some ways, I think who who wouldn't be tempted to ask someone who has moved beyond, especially because this is her spiritual gift. And she said that he said, there are no churches. There are no churches up here. It's, it's just, it's just love. And I, I believe she said that he said, it's just Jesus. And then she clarified and said, and I, I would imagine that what she, he means by that is because we are believers in Jesus Christ here in this time and in this place, it's just Jesus for us, but it probably means that it's just the embodied manifestation of love, no matter what the tradition is or what the time period is, that it's whatever the culture has chosen to honor as someone embodying love. And that's what moves on. That's what carries on beyond this life. And she shared this with me and my thoughts were, and my response to her was, of course, I already knew that I've already believed that. And yet at the same time, it really helped me naturally evolve, at least for the time being out of this place of cynicism. Okay. Now let me see if I can explain this to you all. I'm going to go ahead and do my best. So the question that we have to ask If what we know or what she shared and what I feel to be true is that in the beyond, whatever that is, there is no church. Okay, fine. That's that, that feels simple to me. And yet at the same time, therefore, why, why is there a church here? Especially if the same church is, you know, ours and other churches, why do they quite frankly, cause us so much pain? (laughs) Why they, we construct an identity around them only so that they will disappoint us let us down, disorient us, and demand that we pick up the pieces and construct something that is far messier than the crisp and clean dogmatic belief systems of of a church. Why Why does this even have to be a thing? And clearly, it feels as if we are drawn to this madness, whether it be in this tradition or other traditions. Here we are. We keep doing this thing. And it occurred to me that perhaps the function of this church or of any church is actually, it's just a place where we can learn how to find God and truth and goodness and love. And after all, that is what life is all about in my belief, that we are here in this life to learn, to grow, 
to be made over in the image of something that more and more and more approximates what it means to embody love. And it's interesting that I think that churches mean well. I think they think they're helping us do that. And in fact, I would go so far as to say in many cases, they are in fact doing that. They, they're doing it in ways that they don't think about. They're doing it in ways that are completely antithetical to what they think they're doing, but it's possible at least the way I'm thinking about it, it's possible that we can learn about all of the things that we need to learn about here in this life through our experiences with suffering, whether that be in the family system, in the church system, or quite honestly, in any other system. We can have this journey where we learn about love. And so through this process of growth and through the creation of some sort of an identity in God, which church often gives us, we perhaps are able to hold on to parts of our identity that truly align with who we truly are. And I can only speak for myself, but I know that parts of my true self-identity do in fact come from my upbringing here in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And parts of my own experience as I have grown, as I have woken up and recognized the mistakes that have been made and the betrayals and the struggles and the drama and the trauma that are also part of my upbringing here in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All of these things also have been and continue to be instrumental in my learning how to be a human being that embodies love. So the church itself can, in some ways, on its good days, continue to help me be a more loving person. And on other days, the mistakes, the grievous errors, the lies, the struggles, the blindness, and the underdevelopment of much of the parts of the church that I struggle the most with are the thing that I am able to use to push up against that in fact creates in me the woman I am becoming. And so is church in fact helping me become more truly myself as a divine woman of God? I would have to say the answer to that is yes. So if I'm able to reposition my relationship with the church and say, church, no, you are not the thing that gives me all the answers. You do not have the uh, saving ordinances of salvation, perhaps. You do not have the right answers. We do not have all of the things that were promised that in simple, clean and crisp ways, answer all of the questions that prevent me from the anxiety of growth. No, you don't do any of those things for me. <laughs> Thank you very much, but you just don't. And yet at the same time, you are the platform where I am learning to grow into the full measure of my creation. And if I can take my rep, if I can take this understanding of church, and once again, this is Rachel Held Evans's experience too, and she was in an evangelical church. And so my, my thinking about this is that if we can put cynicism away for long enough to reposition the church and recognize that is it instrumental in our growth and then say, you know what? It is. It has been. Then in some ways, I think that relationship can continue to be progressive. Now, how we choose to be in connection with the church from day to day, of course, depends on our individual 
thoughts, feelings, and insights as far as how is it helping me progress? And that's where, of course, each and every one of us is gifted with our own insights and our own capacity to allow life itself, experiences, relationships, and institutions. How can those things continue to be productive in my greater journey? And each of us can choose where we want to continue the wrestle. Because life is about choosing the platform for the wrestle. And if that wrestle is helping us be made over in the image of God, as we learn how to become more loving in the context of what we see going on around us, then we are on a journey that is profoundly meaningful. And it is why we are here in this life. And I think as I think about it that way, I notice that I'm not necessarily feeling cynical. I don't need to stay in anger and betrayal. I grieve that the church is not what it promised it was going to be. I grieve that I have a lot of work to do on my own, that my salvation is it's an individual project between myself and those whom I worship with the companionship and support of those around me but that I don't lean on anything outside of myself for answers, for anxiety management. And that I recognize that if the church can be something that is instrumental in this growth process in some way, shape, or form, I can thank it for that, but I position myself as the captain of the ship. And then I recognize also, of course, that we have, at least I, once again, speaking on behalf of only myself, I do have to continue circling around and around uh, the, the ongoing frustration that I think that churches think that they are something that they are not. And then I, I, my hope is that as I progress and grow in love, that I can even give them the grace that they are where they, they are in their own developmental process exactly where they can be. That's as, that, that's as far as they can be. And they're doing the best that they can but I give them the grace to be where they are, just as I know that God gives me the grace to be where I am. And when we live in this space of uh, abundance and of expansion and recognizing that growth happens in the crucible of experience, and we have this beautiful perspective that I am in fact growing, changing, evolving, and I'm doing all of those things actually in the context of, believe it or not, my church, then maybe in some completely bass backwards and paradoxical way, the church is in fact helping me become closer to God as a, as an individual, I am allowing my own life's experiences to refine me and to create in me who I am here to become. And I get to choose the context. I get to choose the relationships and I get to choose how I see and experience and even position those relationships. And that is how we're able to grow and not live forever in cynicism. Okay, well, I hope that made sense. It kind of made sense to me in, in sharing it. If this is something that is meaningful to you, would you please share this podcast with people around you? I sure love my chance to be in connection with so many of you. I know there are thousands of you who are not going to be in my groups. I love each and every one of you. I know that sounds really weird, but I do feel a deep connection with this community that has 
sort of grown up around faith expansion. And I feel honored and privileged that I get to be a part of that. If you have not already done so, would you please rate and review this podcast? If you're interested in getting involved in one of my small groups, please jump onto latterdaystruggles.com. There are openings in a group starting in August. The May group is full. The June group is full. So I have gone ahead and um, started some enrollment for an August group. And several of my groups are actually moving on to more advanced content because we've been together for about six to nine months at this point in time. So it's just uh, such rewarding work. And it's really fun to be helping connect people in their faith expansion journeys. Also, if you want to jump on board with any of my content, as far as my online courses, like I said before, there is one that is available for couples in different stages of faith development. And there are more forthcoming in the next several months. So once again, just keep in uh, touch with me as far as going on to latterdaystruggles.com. And if you want uh, individual consults with me, I do a couple of those a week. And I also have people that work for me that are open to uh, longer term coaching. So lots of offerings for you and so interested in being a part of your faith journey. Thank you for being here and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Dialogue Podcast Network.